When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alrighty, so the review, <clears throat> excuse me, so the review is posted, and um, it's on E-Class. If you want to have it, uh, I put it on the front page, the main page, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's um, it's there. Um, there we go. Alrighty, so uh, can y'all still see the, I think I paused it. This is a mess. There we go. All right, you should, should be seeing the, the review. So the review is 22 questions, but there are 35 questions on the test. Uh, and it's because like the first 15, 20 questions are all stimulus-based. And when I say stimulus-based, I just mean that they have uh, stuff that goes with them. So either a quote, a chart to look at, a map, a cartoon, something like that. And typically there's multiple questions associated with with each one. So uh, that's why there's only 35, 22 questions on the review, but there will be 35 questions uh, on the test. All right, so let's get going here. Number one says Fedlars 51, what was the argument in Fed 51? Uh, so remember this was the, the two Fed papers that you had to read and you had to discuss on uh, our discussion board. And uh, Fed 51 was about the the separation of powers and the, the checks and balances and all those sorts of things. So uh, there is a passage from, from Fed 51 that you'll read and just need to pull from. Um, I don't I, I don't suggest going back and, and rereading Fed 51 to prepare for the test. Uh, I think if you understand, hey, the main theme of Fed 51 was the separation of powers. It was the, the checks and balances and, and how those things are going to protect our government from getting too big, from our government becoming too powerful and taking you know, too many liberties away from us, uh, then I think you'll be okay with, with this question. Um, but um, yeah, any that's, that, that's Fed 51, all right? Um, and it ties into the, you know, the kind of how the, the states are gonna have powers, um, you know, through the, it wasn't, it hadn't happened yet, but we tie it now to the 10th Amendment and how there's reserved powers for the state. So it's not just the federal government as the only entity that's going to uh, have power. So if you understand those concepts, I think you're okay with Fed 51. Alrighty, uh, let's see. Number two says LBJ and federalism. What style of federalism did LBJ use? I really struggled with this question uh, as far as writing a review question, and that's the best I could do. And that's a really piss poor job uh, because it really doesn't pertain to the question. Basically, there is a long quote um, or passage from Lyndon Johnson when he's talking about um, some schools and, and other things. And uh, then you pull answers from that passage, basically. So um, the answer to the, the study guide question, what style did he use? That's creative federalism. Uh, and that's where basically the federal government says do this and the states are expected to follow along. All righty. Um, and, and the thing to understand about LBJ is, and, and federalism for that matter, is that 
it evolved. You know, it wasn't just this one thing that this is how we're going to do it forever and ever and ever again. You know, each president was able to have different different forms of, uh, of federalism. So it evolved from president to president. Uh, so it wasn't always just the, the, the one thing um, or the one type where, hey, the states have all the power or all the rights under this one. Uh, the president and the federal government has all the power and the rights under this one. So it, it varied from place to place. And it was a flexible relationship uh, that they had. All right. Uh, so but anyways, I think if you can read the, the quote, I think you might be OK uh, for that question. And most of y'all can read, I believe. Uh, all right. Number three says, how do states feel about federal funding and federal oversight? So there's a map on the test for this one. And uh, questions five and six on the, the test are going to be based on the map. <clears throat> But to answer this question, uh, federal funding, remember, they they don't really like the categorical grants or let's take a step back. They rely heavily on federal funding. And then there's two types of federal funding. There's categorical grants. And there is um, the the block grants and they like the categorical grants. They're not huge. Uh, they don't like the categorical grants. They're not huge fans of the um, of those because those are the ones with tie uh, strings attached to them. They do like the block grants, though, because that gives them. Uh, some freedom to spend the money how they want to. So that's that part. Uh, and then the federal oversight, we didn't talk too much about, we alluded to a lot of things and I don't think I ever came out and truly said, hey, this is federal oversight. But when we talked about uh, the relationship between the states and the federal government and when they're working together through that cooperative federalism, all right, uh, we talked about how, you know, if the, if the federal government is working with the states, then the states have to follow those federal guidelines. Uh, the, the states are going to have to uh, kind of accept the fact that the federal government's there and, and, and listen to them and, and do it and follow the guidelines, basically. So that's not something they really like. So they're not really fans of, of federal oversight. But uh, it is it is what it is. kind of. All right. So it is what it kind of is. Uh, once again, the map is there. And. Yeah. And then there's another one that, that deals with kind of the same topic with a, a political cartoon. Uh, that I think you'll be okay with there as long as you know about the categorical and block grants and, and how they are funded. Uh, all right, number four is a quote from Federalist 84. Now, we did not go over Federalist 84. If you can see the study guide, it's, it gives you kind of an explanation. So when they did the redesign back in 2018, uh, they went to a lot of these stimulus-based questions where, hey, we want you to pull information from passages. And yes, you have required documents that you have to read, but we're also going to give you stuff that you don't cover. And so that's why I put Fed 84 in there. It's not something we cover. It's not something I've ever covered in my life. Um, but it's a, it's a type of question you might see on the test where they give you a passage from Fed 84 and you're just expected to pull the information from it. OK, um, so, you know, it's it's about rights. Once again, I wouldn't go read Fed 84 and try and prepare for this test. I would just rely on my ability to, to read and synthesize information and then pull the answer from from the, the, the stuff uh, that's there. Now, what they do sometimes do with these questions is they will give you the the document that we haven't covered. And then you, know, you might have to use some of the documents that we have. So it might be, hey, Fed 84 said this. And then it might be, hey, what was the rebuttal to Fed 84? And you would know, hopefully, that it's Brutus because Brutus was the you know the other side, the anti-federalists. Uh, stuff. So uh, that's the kind of stuff you're going to see uh, both on, on my test throughout the semester and then when you take the AP test uh, you know, 
whenever that is, May 3rd or whatever the date is. All right. Number five, the Declaration of Independence, uh, its origins and ideas behind the document. So very vague. Another quote. There's a quote from it. And uh, I think if you can read and, and you have some of the basis of knowledge that, hey, Thomas Jefferson took ideas from the philosophers. He's going to take John Locke's uh, idea of, of natural rights. All right. That life, liberty. And, you know, Locke said property. Jefferson changed it to pursuit of happiness to avoid uh, copyright infringement and things like that. Um, so if you can know that and then also the whole separation of powers from Montesquieu and, and that kind of stuff, all that stuff is tied into the Declaration of Independence. So uh, if you can know that, you should be able to read this quote and answer the questions that are associated with it. Uh, let's see. Number six quotes from Article one, Section eight of the U.S. Constitution. So another one of those questions, um, there is just a, uh, it's basically that section, okay, and Article 1, Section 8 just lays out some of the expressed powers of Congress. So if you can remember expressed powers, enumerated powers, are those that are expressly written, they, you can go to that passage and you can see it says Congress can declare war, Congress can print money, um, then, then you should be in good shape for that question. All right. Uh, there's one other type of question uh, or another question that's on the test uh, that deals with some maps and graphs, which I didn't write a review question for because it's just you analyzing that stuff. So uh, that this that question is the last of the. Uh, the quote questions, so the rest of them I'll be able to explain a little bit better. All right. So seven. It says block grants versus categorical grants and. We just talked about this a little bit, but just so you remember, uh, block grants, those are the ones that come with no strings attached. The, the states get these from the, the, the federal government and they can kind of spend them how they want to. Uh, they might have to spend them on a specific program, but they can do what they want with them uh, as far as you know, spending it, uh, running the program how they want to. And we use the example of the Welfare Reform Act of uh, 1996, where they turned over the welfare stuff to uh, the states, while it was still federally funded, but the states could run it how they want to. Categorical grants, remember, those come with strings attached. Uh, the federal government says, hey, you got to spend it here. And if you don't spend it there, you're going to we're going to cut your funding. You're going to lose the funding. So the, the states don't like that because they don't like being told what to do. It'd be like if you got an allowance from your parents and they're like, here's 25 bucks or whatever it is your allowance <clears throat> might be. And they said, here it is. But you can only spend it on gas. If you spend it on anything else, we're cutting you off. All right. Uh, kind of the same concept there for the states with categorical grants. Now, the question on the test is going to be in a format where you have block grants and categorical grants side by side in a table and you have columns and it lists things that are true about both of them. And you have to pick out the answer, the row, basically, that has the two truths. All right. Uh, so if you see categorical grants over here, block grants over there, and you know, you see, Hey, this one starts with a B, this one starts with a C, that would be the correct answer. All right. Now it's not going to be that simple, obviously, but that's how the question is going to be laid out. So when you see it, you'll see this table with columns and rows and you just have to pick out the right answer. It's another one of those new types of questions that they uh, have done. All right. Number eight weaknesses of the articles and the constitutional responses. So if you'll remember, the articles was very weak. And we talked about a few of those weaknesses a long time ago, back on like August, I don't know, back in August sometime. And, um, you know, there was no, no military. You know, there's no national military. So now we have a military 
under the Constitution. There was no ability for Congress to tax. Well, now it's written into the Constitution that they can tax, uh, that Congress can tax. So this question is going to be similar to that last one where there's columns and rows, and it's going to say weaknesses of the articles, and you have to pick out the constitutional response. So you have to pick out the, the right uh, you know, the right response there. So maybe it's something along the lines of, um, you know, remember for, for the articles, it took 13 out of 13 states. So unanimous consent to make any kind of change to the articles. So maybe that question's on there or that answer is on there under the articles. And then under the Constitution, it says, hey, it switched to the amendment process where only three fourths of the states have to agree. That would be the, the, the weakness in the articles and then the constitutional response that fixed it. So that's what this question is going to look at. So my suggestion, uh, if you're going to study for this part, would be to take a look at the weaknesses of the articles. There's probably six, six that you really need to take a look at. And then just what the, the constitutional response was. I'm not going to go through all of them because we've mentioned a few here. Uh, but if you're studying and preparing, uh, that's probably the best way to prepare for that question. But it is just one question. All right. Okay, number nine, the Federalists versus Anti-Federalists, the last of the, the column and row questions. So you'll have Federalists on one side, Anti-Federalists on the other, and you have to pick out there the, the likeness, the, whatever the truths are. Um, so just remember the Federalists were for the strong, powerful central government. They were for the Constitution. Uh, they typically tended to be for the wealthy, powerful elite. Alrighty. Uh, and then the anti-federalists were the obviously the opposite. They were for smaller central government. They were for stronger state governments. They tended to be farmers and, and people like that. Um, so those were the main uh, main things. There. The main thing to remember and know is powerful central government versus a weak central government, um, weak states versus powerful states. Those were the big giant differences that you got to know and remember for that question, I believe. All right. Um, so. Yeah. And, you know, within that, remember, the Anti-Federalists were all about the Bill of Rights because they were concerned about people's rights being protected. The Federalists were like, hey, we're going to just do it. OK, we'll protect them. And the Anti-Federalists didn't believe that they were going to do that. So uh, it, it comes down to those differences. Number 10, Shays Rebellion and its effects on the Articles. Uh, I mainly put Shays Rebellion in there just for old time's sake, just because there always seems to be uh, a question about Shays uh, on test. Now, there wasn't one last year that I know of because of the format. There was no multiple choice question test last year. Uh, but typically, even with the redesign, they've had a Shays Rebellion question on the test. So they love it for some reason. Someone somewhere in College Board just absolutely adores Shays Rebellions. I don't see the importance of it, but whatever. Uh, just remember, this is the event that people point to. Hey, that shows the weaknesses of the articles. You remember, people knew the articles was weak before this, but this is the event that people point to and say, hey, this was a this is a bad government. We need to make changes to it. And so if you can remember that, you should be in pretty good shape for that one. Number 11, explain separation of powers and checks and balances. So this is a Montesquieu concept and uh, the separation of powers. We don't want to have one person, one group with all the powers. So instead, we split them up. So we have the legislative branch that can write the laws. Uh, and do things within that kind of genre where they tax and declare war and stuff. And then we have the executive branch, which is going to enforce the laws. And then we have the um, judicial branch, which is going to interpret the laws. So that's the separation of powers. Now, checks and balances, those are the things that kind of the watchdog function in order to keep one branch from becoming too powerful. So if the president sees Congress writing a bunch of bad laws, 
then they can veto those laws. So it keeps them in check there. If the legislative branch sees the president doing illegal things, then they have the power to impeach him. If they see the president appointing a bunch of Chris Daniels to the Supreme Court, and they know that's a bad choice, they don't confirm Chris Daniels to the Supreme Court. All right. So they have all these checks and balances to keep you know, the power in check from each branch and to make sure no one accumulates too much power. Number 12, what are concurrent concurrent powers? Those are the powers that the, the uh, government share. So the state government and the national government, like they can both tax us, which is a horrible thing. Uh, they are both supposed to both supposed to protect us, uh, things like that. It's just I think it's a pretty simple kind of low level question. Uh, about the concurrent powers. Uh, what does the 10th Amendment do? So the 10th Amendment, this is what gives states basically their reserve powers. So the 10th Amendment states that as long as the Constitution does not specifically deny the power to the states, then they have the ability, the right to do that. So for example, it specifically states the only people that can coin and print money is the, the, the Congress. OK, no one else can order anything, anybody to print money. So that's specifically denied to the states. It specifically states in the Constitution, Congress declares war. So Georgia can't go off and do their own thing. All righty. But the 10th Amendment says as long as it doesn't do that kind of stuff, then it's left to the states. And so this is why this is why, you know, every state's response to COVID was so different because the, the federal government left it up to them to kind of do what they wanted to to protect public safety. All right. So um, that's what the, the reserved and kind of the denied powers are and what the Tenth Amendment says. Uh, Fourteen, what is federalism? Pretty simple. Um, it is going to be the where we have two governments. Well, we have multiple governments sharing power over us. But uh, another one of those low level. I try to mix in some low level questions just so you're not constantly doing stimulus based questions um, that are that require that extra level of thinking. So this is a pretty simple one. It should be anyways. It's just the uh, the national government and the state government sharing powers over us. OK, number. Fifteen, how could Congress make changes to the driving age? <clears throat> Excuse me. So this is going to come from. The, the stuff we talked about yesterday in class where we were talking about the, the money. So basically what would probably happen here since, if you'll remember, uh, the driving age is going to be a state thing. All right. So the driving age is going to be a state power uh, where they get to decide who can drive. So if Georgia wants to make 14 year olds be able to drive, they could do that. So what would have to happen is Congress would have to have some kind of mandate all right. And where they tell states, hey, we really want to see the, the driving age bumped up to 18. Uh, and just like with the drinking age, if you don't do this, what are we going to cut? Well, we're going to cut your funding somewhere and wherever it might be, you know, whatever this stupid example might be. Uh, they're going to cut the funding for whatever. Whatever program, if states don't comply, Does that make sense to everybody. So here's what we want states. We want it to be 18 or we want you to drop it to 13. If you don't comply, we're going to cut your money. Okay. Uh, let's see. Number 16, Wisconsin versus Yoder. I know we went over a lot of court cases, and I, I, I always wrestle with how many court cases to put on a test. I did limit it, limit this one uh, to just Wisconsin versus Yoder, although there were multiple questions, uh, because we're going to see some of these court cases later on down the road in civil liberties and civil rights. Uh, so I don't like to overdo it. You need to know them all, but I also don't want to. I don't want to overdo the importance of, of the court cases. 
if that makes sense. It makes sense in my head. I'm probably not explaining it very well. Anyways, though, Wisconsin versus Yoder. Remember, this is a free exercise case. All right, so a free exercise case. And uh, this is where the Amish wanted to pull their kids out of Wisconsin schools uh, before the law said they were allowed to. Let's just make it up. I'm, I'm not sure what the age was, but let's say it was after they couldn't pull their kids out till 16. Okay. And they wanted to pull their kids out at 13 or four, whatever, whenever you turn 18, uh, uh, go into eighth grade, they wanted to pull their kids then. And so that's what they're going to sue based on is the fact that, Hey, our religion says that these kids need to come with us and start living our way of life and stop going to school. And so they sued based on that. And the Supreme Court is going to agree with them that the Wisconsin state law that said kids have to be in school to this certain age does um, does violate their free exercise. All right. So that is what Wisconsin versus Yoder was about. Number 17, know the philosophers, Montesquieu, Locke, Voltaire and Hobbes and their beliefs. So on the test, just so you're aware, uh, it's going to be a question where there's going to be like one long sentence. Actually, there's. A couple of sentences, but they have blanks and it says blank believed in freedom of speech, blank believed in the natural rights. And then you'll just have to put them in order. OK, so you'll just have to put them uh, in order uh, in the in the answer. So the answers will be all, all those names and you just have to put them in the right order. All right. There's a slide from one of the very first things we did uh, back in like August. 14th or something like that, where we looked at all these philosophers. But just so you know uh, what they did. So Montesquieu, all right, Montesquieu is the separation of powers guy. Locke is going to be the social contract slash natural rights guy. Voltaire was the freedom of speech and freedom of religion guy. And then Hobbes was just kind of a do-it-all person, uh, and just his writings are going to contribute. Uh, he he was he helped with the social contract and some other things, but just overall his writings contribute to our government and our constitution. All right, but just be able to put them in order, just from be able to mem it's low level memorize those guys. Number eighteen, explain the three fifths compromise. Uh, remember the this dealt with representation in Congress, and the population of a state was going to determine how much representation you got plus how much you paid in taxes, and so. Uh, for the longest time, the South had always said, hey, slaves don't count as population until this pops up. And now all of a sudden they can get power in Congress if they have more people. And so for representation purposes, the South was all on board for slaves count as population. But then when it came to taxes, they said, nah, they don't count there. So they wouldn't have it both ways. The North was the same way. So they weren't any better. They said slave, the slave population counts for tax purposes, but not for representation purposes. And so they came up with the three-fifths compromise where three-fifths of the slave population would basically count for both of them. All right. Uh, number 19, pluralist, elite in class and hyperpluralism. So uh, these are some some pretty simple, I, I say simple, but as far as just just know the, the theories, just memorize them. You don't have to read and, and kind of understand them. As long as you can remember them, uh, you should be okay. So pluralism uh, and hyperpluralism are similar. They both deal with all the groups, the interest groups, whatever the interests are based on, religion, business, um, region, whatever it might be. Okay. Pluralist theory is where they're kept in check. So there's all these interest groups. And they're all trying to get the government to do stuff, but they keep each other in check. So the environmental groups keep the big businesses 
groups in, in check. Uh, the religion groups keep the anti-religion groups in check, so on and so forth. So pluralist theory is where there are groups, but they're all kind of kept in check. Elite and class theory, this is where it's just a small group of people, all right, uh, that run things. And most people today would probably say we're, we're here at elite and class theory because it's so expensive to be any kind of representative. All right. Uh, and then you've got hyper pluralism. And this is the one that does not happen. But this is where all the interest groups have access to the government and the government is keeping them all happy. And it's messing up. The government can't function because they're trying to they're trying to keep the environmental groups here happy. And then they're trying to keep the business groups over here happy. And there's no way to keep them all happy at the same time. If they create a law that keeps the environmental groups happy and says no pollution whatsoever, well, it's going to upset the big business groups. So then they have to make changes and it's just, it's, they would never get anything done and nothing would work. <clears throat> Number 20, explain confederation and unitary. Uh, confederation, <clears throat> this is where the states had all the power. So this is what we were under the Articles of Confederation. So the states had all the power and they would dictate to the central government what was going on. And then the unitary is vice versa. The unitary is where the central government has all the power and they dictate to the central, I mean, to the, uh, the small little state governments what's going on. So we went from the, the unitary with the British having all the power, telling the colonies what to do. We flipped it to the Confederation, the Articles of Confederation, where the states had all the power and they told our central government that we had created what to do. Number 21, explain the difference between dual and cooperative federalism. So this is that layer cake and marble cake that we went over on Thursday in class. So dual federalism is the layer cake. And this is where they stay in their own lane. They don't get involved. OK, um, and so we we have that in some areas. Education's one. Military spending, dealing with with foreign governments is another. All right. Uh, now, I did say something the other day yesterday about the, the education and how the federal level doesn't affect us very much. But then I just saw an article yesterday where the, the federal government is not going to, if I read it correctly, I didn't read the, the whole article, but they're going to not let us waive uh, intercourse tests and things like that. So we're going to kind of be in a battle with the federal department of education saying one thing, but states want to do another. So we'll have to see how that plays out. So maybe the federal government is going to affect education this year. Uh, for the first time in a long time. And then cooperative federalism, this is where they work together. This is that marble cake, and they're going to work together. Uh, remember, we talked about the shared costs that states like. Uh, we talked about how the, uh, you know, the, the, the federal guidelines have to be followed and all that kind of stuff. So, but dual, you stay in their lane. Cooperative, this is where they're working together. And then finally, the formal amendment process. So uh, the formal amendment process is... You create an amendment one of two ways. Either Congress creates it with the two-thirds vote or a national convention creates it with the two-thirds vote. We never do the national convention just because we already have Congress in place. Once Congress has, a, has created it and approved it, it then goes to the states. The state legislatures will sign off on it or state conventions will sign off on it. We never do state conventions because we already have state legislatures in place. So why would we do that? Uh, you have to get three fourths of the state. So 38 states uh, to sign off on this. This is what you did your FRQ on. So if you're not sure about it, maybe go back and look at that on AP Classroom. Read my feedback uh, to see how you did there. Maybe if you didn't get it right, uh, if you got a 100 on that, then you probably are going to be good with this question. All right. Now, one thing I did leave off of this test is the Electoral College, and that's because we're going to do it later on and we're going to go into even more depth in it. So I chose to leave it off this test, uh, even though 
uh, it is a part of these standards. I did leave it off because we are going to cover it uh, a little bit later in a little bit more depth than we would have here. All right. So let me stop all my recordings.